Managing your law practice can be challenging. Marketing, time management, attracting clients, and all the things besides the cases that you need to do that aren't billable. Welcome to this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. This is where you'll get the information you need from expert guests and host attorney Rodney Dowell here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast, helping attorneys improve their practice. We're glad you could listen today on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Rodney Dow, Executive Director of Massachusetts Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers and Director of LCL's Massachusetts Law Office Management Program. Improving the lives of attorneys by offering free and confidential help for Massachusetts attorneys on issues ranging from depression and addiction to how to improve their business practices. For more information... On us, visit www.lclma.org and www.massloomap.org, masslomap.org, uh, and you'll find a lot of very helpful information. I'd also like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Firm Manager from LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions. Get your free 30-day trial at firmmanager.com backslash LTN. Now, previously, we had our guest, Eric McLeish, on to discuss how law firms can help attorneys and staff deal more effectively with chronic stress and thereby become better attorneys and live more healthy lives. Eric was been picked as one of the top 10 winning trial attorneys by National Law Journal in 2003. Boston, he's a uh, graduate of Boston University School of Law, and he was a law clerk for U.S. District Court Judge Joseph Toro. He started the Boston offices of two national law firms and was the co-head of the litigation department of one of the firms. He was elected to senior equity partnership in both firms. From 2002 to 2004, he was the lead counsel in the Boston priest abuse cases, where he and his firm represented more than 300 victims over three years. I think, uh, Eric, if anyone is familiar with uh, law firm stress based upon those credentials, it's probably you. And I really appreciate you, you joining us again. Well, it's nice to have me here again, Rodney. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And last time that we spoke, we got to talk about, you know, law firm and law firm culture and uh, attempt to provide some ideas about how law firms could be uh, better at uh, addressing the, the stress that, that accompanies uh, practicing in those law firms. But, you know, to, what we know also is that the large portion of attorneys work as sole practitioners or small firms that are basically acting as sole practitioners. The, the chronic stress that I run into with these attorneys is rampant, uh, and they uh, they really face stress from all sides, providing super, providing superlative services to their clients, earning sufficient income to pay the bills, month in and month out, managing employees, finding the next client, keeping up with technology, and on and on and on. And what I'd like to, you know, talk to you about is, you know, once upon a time you were known as this warrior in the courtroom, but now you're really a strong proponent of mediation, using stress management techniques to improve lives of attorneys. And I'd like to just, you know, talk to you about how those, one, you know, a little background from you about how you've gone from being this uh, courtroom litigation attorney warrior to a mediator and a believer in, in, in uh, stress management? Well, first of all, I had a really good 25-year 
practice in litigating and trial law, and I'll, I'll never regret that. But it, it reached a point where I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, representing victims of sexual abuse uh, was uh, demoralizing, to say the least. Um, there's this phenomenon of vicarious trauma that psychologists, doctors, and even lawyers suffer from, where if you're around too many traumatic people who've been traumatized, you tend uh, also to develop symptoms of that. And uh, basically, uh, one part of the introduction that you didn't include was that I really had to stop. And what I thought I would do um, after I stopped is become you know, very, very familiar with all the techniques that I should have been following when I was practicing law about stress management. So I went back to school. Uh, I learned about stress management. And then I actually taught it uh, up at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire for four years. So uh, what I hope is that people do not reach the point where I did, where there was just really no choice. Uh, about having to stop practicing law. I, I really wish that the techniques that I'm now familiar with, I, I had used when I was practicing. And I think there's this this belief among some lawyers that this is never going to happen to me, that I'm stronger than my clients, and that I'll be able to get through it. And, and, and unfortunately, I don't think that's true in many cases. Well, it really, and it seems particularly uh, to me that with so, you know, I know there's incredible stress at being a law, large law firms and, you know, there's the billable hours and uh, finding enough business. But those stresses are really the same for solo practitioners, only other, you know, there seems to be like even more stress to me for being a solo practitioner. What's your uh, take on, on the kind of the stress uh, uh, facing sole practitioners? Well, I think it's different from people in large law firms, uh, but maybe not in, in a significant way. I mean, I think law firms used to be places where you would get a lot of support from your colleagues. You know, I'm not sure that's true uh, in, in some of these firms, but solo practitioners face very, very, you know, ongoing stress in terms of being alone. I mean, uh, my experience in, in working with and knowing people who are by themselves or in small law firms, that it's in addition to all the other stresses that you mentioned, it's almost a sink or swim situation uh, in many instances. For example, you may go through periods where you're overwhelmed with work and put in long hours um, away from your family trying to meet the needs of the clients. And other times, it, there may be not enough work to do, uh, which can also create some significant stress as well. Um, you know, what, what, what I think is important for people to know is that, and I've talked to many small practitioners over the years, solo law offices, is that there are a lot of other people who are in the same situation that you are in terms of challenges and in terms of stress. One of the things that is unquestionably true is that people uh, who are facing significant challenges in terms of stress often think that they're the only ones, that their colleagues who appear at least in court or on the surface uh, to be so well put together, they're really not. So the first thing I would advise solo practitioners is that you're not alone in feeling uh, depressed and feeling anxious uh, and in feeling overwhelmed at times. It's something that's very common. Uh, letting people know that sometimes can be something of a relief so they, they don't feel there's something wrong with them. So that's the first piece of advice I would give. Well, and one of the things that I found interesting, and, and I'm trying to still get my hands around this, is you have described in, in some of your literature and, and discussions with you uh, the different that we all live, or at least most uh, attorneys live with, like ongoing levels of chronic stress, but you differentiate that from something you called acute 
stress, I believe. Yes. Can you explain to me and our listeners what that difference is? Sure. It would be Pollyannish to believe that you can have a successful career as a lawyer and not face stress. You will face stress. And that's not all bad. Acute stress will get you ready for court, will get you to prepare the documents you need for your real estate closing. I mean, that, that kind of stress is all right. It's when it becomes chronic, when it's every day, that it starts to take a debilitating toll on human beings. And the literature is is, is really, it's not subject to debate anymore about the effects that chronic stress can have on individuals. It can affect every part of your body, ranging from your brain functioning uh, to your gastrointestinal system, to your endocrine system, cardiovascular. I mean, chronic stress kills. Uh, the estimate is that 90% of all doctor's visits, according to the CDC, are now related in one way or another to stress-related illnesses. So this is something that can kill you, that can significantly impair your life. I think the very first thing is that people have to understand that, that this is something that has to change when you're facing stress day in and day out, then, then that's chronic. That's not healthy. That's bad. Acute stress is something that actually can be good. So, uh, and just to try, for our listeners, I guess, to try to understand these differences. I mean, you know, it, as it, I practiced for 18 years, and uh, and the last nine is a, a partner in a two-person firm. And, I mean, every day was a little stressful, right? I mean, I, I would go in, and I had to worry about, okay, I have motions due, I have uh, these, uh, you know, r- briefs due, I have to go in and t- t- meet with the judge tomorrow on, on some hearing, Um and 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 it, but you know I mean but that was just kind of what would gear me up every day. So what's the difference between that feeling of okay I've got a lot to do and I'm you know and it makes me nervous but I but I can get through it and this level of okay this is really impacting my life. Where does it become chronic and how do I know that I've gotten to this chronic stage? Well, it, it's very interesting. Um, I would say that the the chronic stage begins when people start to have irrational habitual thinking about themselves, about their cases, about their lives. Mm. And, and let, me, let me just give you an example. Yeah. It's one thing being nervous before you're going into court. It's quite another thing where every day, yeah, and, and it's interesting because many people aren't even conscious of the fact that they're having these thoughts, and we'll talk about maybe some exercises that are helpful in getting people to realize what they're thinking. But if you come in every day to work, you believe that you're a failure. You believe that everybody's doing much better than you're doing. You believe, I, I often talk to lawyers, and, and I experience a little bit of this myself, feeling as though that you're a fraud, that you're coming across as somebody who's really well put together, who's really competent, and the truth is, is that you're basically a bad person who is incompetent. Once you get to that point, and again, we can talk about how you even realize that you've gotten to that point, which is which is not as easy as I'm making it sound. Once you get to that point, you need to get help. Yeah. Well, let's let's do talk. I mean, that's a great segue. What, what? How do you know you've reached that point? I mean, it, as you said, it's probably not as easy as it sounds. No, it's because not. It's not. And, and, and when I teach stress management, one of the first things I'll do um, with the individuals who are taking the course or that we're helping is I'll ask them to write down for 10 minutes what their thoughts are. We, we teach people a very fundamental proposition that, that first of all, the way we, engage, the way we get chronic stress is that there's some stimulus. Uh, it, it could be uh, an, an upsetting telephone call from your spouse, for example. Uh-huh. So, so that can invent, why aren't you home? Why are you always working? You know, we, we can't meet the bills. The, the mortgage is late again. That, in turn, triggers a thought. And, and, and the thought could be, 
You know, I'm a failure. I'm terrible. I'm not providing for my family. That could be your thought. And then that leads to an emotion, the sadness, despair. Emotions are different from thoughts. Some lawyers don't even realize that. And then that leads to behavior, which could range, obviously, anywhere from depression, substance abuse, things that we know that are associated with chronic stress. So the first thing that I do with people is I have them write down their thoughts, just to sit there and just the thoughts are coming into your head, write them down on a piece of paper. And, you know, students will often say, well, I, you know, I don't have any thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> which is really ridiculous because we have about 60,000 a day. Yeah. Um, and people don't realize that. And I said, well, just go ahead and try it and, and try to draw a line between those thoughts and some emotions that you've experienced. That you're experiencing while you have those thoughts. And so people do this and they say, I, I can't do it. And t- 10 minutes later, they say, no, I need another, another 20 <laughs> minutes. I'm writing down these thoughts like crazy and they filled five pages. That's a really good exercise to get people to understand what they're thinking is about. And, and then if you can do that, and I actually have uh, some uh, other techniques that you can use, but it's, it's very interesting. You do that every day for a period of time. If you have the discipline to do it, you can start to see how many of those thoughts are, are completely irrational. They bear no relationship to reality. You may be going through a slow time, but the truth is you've met your mortgage payments you know, every, every day, every month for the past 15 years, and it's going to get better. And, and, and you write those down every day, and you realize how many of them are completely irrational. And, 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 and then you realize that there's so many of them are exactly the same every day. So we engage when we're suffering from chronic stress in habitual negative thinking, but we've got to become aware, and that's something we'll talk about later, I'm sure, aware that we're doing that because so oftentimes it seems illogical to believe that we don't even realize we're having these thoughts, but, but on, a, on, a, on a conscious level, we may not realize that. So that's the first thing I would recommend. And how does that, you know, the, this issue of habitual, you know, negative thoughts, how does that impact us? I mean, well, when you when you have habitual negative thinking, um, it leads to behaviors that are what we call. And I don't mean to be too clinical here, but yeah. in a, inappropriate coping mechanisms. You you have have these terrible feelings of sadness and despair um, that's brought about by chronic stress, which is in turn is is brought about by thinking, which is many times highly irrational. It's not all irrational. We can talk about what you do if the thinking is rational, but it's highly irrational. So these thoughts have a strong, strong influence over your emotions and in turn over your behaviors. But unless you start dealing with this, and that that in turn leads to even more stress. I mean, you're you're now drinking, you're coming home, your spouse and your children are upset with you, and it's sort of self-perpetuating. So the key is in, in managing stress is, first of all, education, educating people that this is real. This is not something that, you know, only losers suffer from. It's something that, unfortunately, is very much a part of practicing law these days. The second step after giving that education is to make people aware that it all starts with our thoughts and that if we can alter our thoughts about ourselves, about our circumstances, then we're going to engage, we're going to have much happier lives, more positive emotions, uh, and we're going to have better behavior. It's when this goes on and on and on without any sort of analysis by the individual of, is this rational? You know, is there another way that I can, that I can deal with all these emotions without engaging in this negative thinking? It's when they don't do that, that, that the real serious stuff happens. Well, tell me this. I mean, have you noticed, you know, any change in the willingness of attorneys to um, believe that, you know, that one, I guess, that um, these negative thoughts and acute uh, or chronic stress are real issues and 
uh, are willing to to start moving forward and dealing with them? Well, it's very interesting you ask that because I would say generally no, that there's this macho uh, kind of culture um, that is part of practicing law where people feel as though they're invincible, that, that they have to be perfect, that they can't show any of this uh, on the surface. And, and, and then tragically, in many cases, it reaches the situation where people have to do something about it. They're chronically depressed. They have to go into a treatment program. Um, they, they engage in other ways of dealing with the stress, as you know, drug and alcohol issues. So, you know, uh, un- unfortunately, uh, there's this kind of macho belief. What's interesting, and I've taught police officers about the same type of issue, is that many police departments now are much more attuned to this than they were before. And you know, it's hard to imagine a profession that's more macho than law enforcement. Um, doctors, um, uh, we've provided help to, to physicians, for example, ER physicians who face this day in and day out. Uh, mental health professionals also face, particularly those who are in practice by themselves, often face similar issues. But I would say that the legal profession is behind the times. You know, a lot of their clients that you're that you're representing, you know, your your company clients, they will have their own stress management programs, you know, for their employees. But it, it would sort of be unthinkable that that you would want to participate in such a program. So it it, it really tragically reaches the point where the stress results, it unnecessarily results in some you know, very, very poor decision-making and very, very unfortunate behavior. So the, the idea is to intercept this at the earliest possible time. Well, and I guess, I mean, there's probably a lot of different ways that people can um, deal with it. I mean, but if it becomes truly chronic and, and results in depression or or other uh, uh, coping mechanisms like you know drinking too much or taking drugs or whatever then we, we that that's leading to a significantly different uh, manner of dealing with it maybe oh, I mean, therapy yeah. or addiction or whatever but it would seem to me like going to a stress management course or, or thinking about how to deal with stress in a more proactive measure would be much more acceptable to most attorneys than taking that next step of going to a therapist or, yes, a- or something. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the great irony is that lawyers who are, you know, who are factually oriented, who want to be able to prove things, seem to ignore the overwhelming literature about the effects of stress, and then the very positive, uh, the positive news that is not just anecdotal about what, for example, an eight-week stress management program can do. Now, eight weeks sounds like a long time. It doesn't mean you have to go into a program. You know, it's not an inpatient stress management <laughs> program. Right. But it's, 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 for example, it's meeting once a week with people, um, and we rerun these groups, that, that uh, are uh, skilled in stress management. I do it with a clinician. Um, and and there, this is not a novel idea that, that we've had. This is something that has been going on for a long time, for the past 20 years. In fact, it was started by John Kabat-Zinn, Dr. Zinn of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. It's a very interesting study that just came back um, last January from Mass General Hospital, is that individuals who participate in an eight-week program, again, meeting once a week you know, with homework, learning various exercises, that there are, are observable changes in their brain structure over the course of eight weeks. And these are not people who are Tibetan monks, right. you know, skilled in meditation. Can you hold on there? Sure. I want to just take a quick uh, break, and then we'll come back, and I want to talk more about the uh, study that you're just talking about. So it's time for a quick break and a word from our sponsors, Firm Manager by LexisNexis. 
If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com LTN. That's firmmanager.com LTN. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to the Unbillable Hour on Legal Talk Network. I'm Rodney Dowd, joined by Eric McLeish, Principal of McLeish & Wolverton, former trial attorney and proponent of better living through stress management. Eric, we were just in the middle of you uh, talking about this recent uh, uh, study that came out and about the benefits of uh, an eight-week program. Can you uh, tell, uh, tell us a little bit more sure. about that? Well, we've always known that that when you suffer from, from chronic stress and even acute stress, that there's a release of, of very stress hormones and, and chemicals into your body. And again, acute stress can be something positive. Adrenaline is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but w- what we didn't really know is that for people like lawyers who, who you know don't go regularly to retreats at an ashram or up to the Himalayas to go to a monastery, what we didn't really know is, is there anything quantifiable, apart from the anecdotal evidence, that can show that these eight-week programs make a difference? Well, last January, um, uh, Mass General released a study. Uh, it was actually a controlled study involving, I think, over 20 individuals who participated uh, in a uh, stress management program. Um, similar to what I've described earlier. They were given baseline MRIs before they went in. There was a control group of other people who were also given baseline MRIs who didn't participate in any stress management. So the question was, what happened to their brains through this neuroimaging at the end of eight weeks? And what they found is that there was significant change in the gray matter areas of the of the brain, such as the hippocampus, that are associated with positive emotions and feelings and a decrease in those sections of the brain that, that are associated with, with, with negative um, emotions and thoughts. And it was, it's a fascinating study. It's easy. You can just Google Mass General Hospital eight-week stress management. And you'll be able to read the results. But it, it, it was, and it was for, as they say, meditation-naive individuals. These are not experienced practitioners of meditation or stress management. So there is actually quantifiable objective evidence that these programs work. Um, and, and, you know, the question is, you, you have to keep doing it after those eight weeks. You can't just, you know, be cured from stress at the end of eight weeks. You have to keep doing some of these um, uh, techniques. But the techniques don't involve an incredible uh, amount of time. The, in the Mass General study, the individuals were doing 27 minutes a day 
of stress management techniques, yet benefited from these, you know, very clear changes in their brain structure. So it involves some time commitment. I would suggest that it is a very small time commitment as opposed to the time commitment with dealing with the, the ravaging effects of chronic stress. But so this is something that's, that's relatively easy to do. It does take discipline. The first time you do it, you should probably do it in the context of a larger group, although I certainly recommend meditation and mood charting and journaling, which we can talk about later on, to anybody. But the way to kickstart this is to become involved in a program, and, and probably one that is run by both lawyers and clinicians, lawyers that are trained in dealing with stress management. And there, there are some people out there, apart from, from our group, that do this around the country. And it's, it, 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 it makes a huge difference. You have to make a commitment to it, but it's going to make a huge difference in your life and probably the lives of your family. Well, and, and I, you know, I can see how like, that might be easier to get into with if you were a law firm because a law firm might actually sponsor something like this if they're, you know, aware. How how do solo practitioners and small firm attorneys find a a group um, that would be helpful for uh, starting this kind of uh, uh, stress reduction program? Well, in almost every major city in the United States, there there are programs for uh, that are generally run by mental health practitioners um, that that are designed as general stress management programs. So, for example, in Boston, we have the Mind Body Institute that's run by Dr. Herbert Benson. That's where I first went, um, and 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 that is not tailored specifically to lawyers. So, if you don't have a program that's specifically tailored to lawyers, law enforcement personnel, you will almost certainly be able to find uh, an eight-week, six- or eight-week program in the community that you live in. And and I would recommend that people do that. Um, And and, and then it's just really a question of, you know, apart from that, what can I do uh, that's going to help me with my stress? And one of the things, of course, I recommend, particularly for sole practitioners, is that if you have gone through a program like this, uh, or if you're thinking about it, there's probably a lot of other lawyers who have done it as well, and it would be nice to get to know them. I don't, I'm not quite sure how you would do that. But one of the things that I think is, is really important for solo practitioners is to um, be around their peers. Um, and, and, and there are certainly organizations that do that. What we found through stress management, management research is that one of the most important things in terms of reducing stress, and we can talk about the other techniques, but is involvement with our peers who are in similar situations. It it helps you to understand, and this is kind of strangely reassuring, that you're not the only person in this boat. Um, and yes, it does involve having to talk about feelings, which for, for lawyers sometimes doesn't come easily. But, but getting that kind of social support, uh, peer support from people who are in the same situation is, is very, very beneficial. Well, and uh, that's that's a uh, I think great idea, and 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 as you said, I do think sometimes it scares attorneys to actually talk about their feelings, but uh, certainly a, a valuable thing. The other thing I wanted to just uh, clarify for our listeners here is when you talk about techniques. I mean, I I, I don't want to scare our listeners off from doing this by m- making those techniques sound like they're too scary or uh, you know unapproachable. What do you mean by the techniques? used to to deal with stress management. Sure. Let me just also say that there's uh, organizations like yours around the country in various um, states, and, and you should certainly contact a, an organization like Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers if they exist in your state. Uh, okay, so let's talk about what, what this course might look like and the, the techniques that are involved. Well, this is not electroconvulsive therapy. Um, but it, but it's challenging. I mean, if you ask most lawyers or most human beings to be able to sit quietly for 20 minutes, 
and to focus on their breathing. That's actually a very difficult thing to do, and, and it's not something that comes easily. But that's certainly one of the first things that we do, and we, we can call it meditation or we can call it a um, relaxation response. It doesn't really make any difference. Um, but, but the first thing is to try to quiet your brain down a little bit. And what that involves is, is sitting quietly, preferably straight up in a chair. We have the students do it. Uh, engaging in diaphragmatic breathing, belly breathing. In fact, that's when we were born, we did belly breathing, not the kind of thoracic breathing, breathing we do now. But, but breathing and starting to just become aware of what's going into your mind. And, and it's impossible to stop thoughts. Nobody can do that. Maybe the, the people who've done meditation for 25 years uh, can do it. But initially, it's very, very hard to stop the thoughts. But it's important to be aware of them. And so what will happen to people is that they'll start the breathing, they'll be focusing on their breathing, and then they'll realize, you know, 20, five minutes later, they're back to their thinking. All they're doing is thinking and not focusing on their breathing. That's okay. They can do that. So that's one technique that's very important. We also uh, do a technique that involves mood charts, and this is really fascinating. Uh, there's a form that you can fill out, and we provide it to our students, and we ask them to do it each day, that, that tracks their moods. Um, and, and then it, it, it also asks them to fill out um, some of their most compelling thoughts that they've had that day that are negative. And then we have on another side of the sheet, we ask them to give a rational response. So one might be, my, my children hate me because I'm never able to go to their games. Then the rational response to that could be, well, in fact, I do attend when I can, and I'm busy working, and I have a great relationship with my daughter, and we just went on a trip to China to go biking, for example. I mean, there are rational responses to these thoughts. It's important to write them down. And what's really interesting is we have students, and we try to do follow-up six months later, um, we have them go back and, and we have them look at all the negative thoughts, like, I'm never going to get another case, for example. Well, sure enough, six months later, they're overwhelmed with work. So that helps. That technique can be helpful in getting people to realize how irrational their thinking is. Then there's other things as well. I mean, for example, journaling is, is very important. Being able to, the lawyers, as you said, are not used to talking about their feelings, but journaling where you express your feelings in a private way. Um, is, and you can you know, encrypt it on your computer so other people can't see it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's very, very important. Teaching people to talk about their feelings. Awareness and what we call mindfulness is a big part of this process. But I would certainly say that people say, well, I'm, uh, my mind is quiet when I'm watching TV. No, your mind is not quiet when you're watching TV. Or you can say, for example, my mind is quiet when I'm sleeping. No, your mind is not quiet when you're sleeping. <laughs> so just being able to take that 20 minutes a day, you know, and maybe more, maybe 25 minutes, to quiet your mind, to do some writing exercises, to get involved in organizations with your peers, it can change. I've seen it absolutely turn people's lives around. I, this all sounds so, um, you know, important to me and, and obviously like can be so beneficial as you found it was very beneficial after having, you know, a very successful uh, litigation career that you enjoyed. Um, but as you said, you know, we have a problem of getting these type of stress management techniques accepted among our peers. What besides doing shows like this, what else can those of us that believe in it you, you think do to spread the word successfully and get more people to engage in these kind of successful pro, these kind of programs? Well, I, I think that it can start early. Um, I give a um, lecture every year at Harvard Law School about, uh, in, in Professor Dershowitz's ethics class, about self-ethics, about the obligations of each lawyer to take care of him or herself. So it should start in the law schools. Law schools generally do not do a great, a great job at preparing people for what they're going to be facing 
uh, when they get out. And, and there's no good reason why they shouldn't. They absolutely should. Um, the second thing is that I think that the organized bar uh, and organizations that are involved in continuing legal education uh, need to step up to the plate to recognize that you know suicide rates, mental health uh, issues, and substance abuse issues are higher in the legal profession than they are in almost every other uh, career in the country. We can't deny those statistics anymore. The, the rate of job dissatisfaction, for example, um, among lawyers is, is extremely high. It's actually not as high as it used to be, but they haven't taken any, any new measurements since the recession hit us. <laughs> but but there, there, there needs to be a recognition that we have real, real problems relating to stress and that the leaders of the bar and, and the people who have... Um, who run the continuing legal education courses need to understand that more needs to be offered to people. People will come forward by the droves and, and enroll in these courses if they think that there's not a stigma associated with it. That their other colleagues, their you know colleagues in small law firms, are are also are also involved uh, with facing similar challenges. So I think it's a pro- it's a process of early education in the law school. It's going to take a long time to happen. Right. I mean, I've been proposing a, sort of a real life uh, course, mandatory course for law schools for a long time, and we may get that in next September. But it's it's a slow process. But the, the alternative is is really unacceptable to to let people in this profession, which you know I obviously care about deeply, to let them suffer unnecessarily. You know, there are some cases where there's a real problem. Problem. I mean, somebody is involved in a malpractice case, or they're losing clients, or you know, and and so their their thinking then is not necessarily irrational. They may have a real problem. I, you know, they may have, but the key is not to perseverate about it. The key is to make a plan about what they're going to do, and that's what we also help people do: is to create a realistic plan rather than just engaging in this counterproductive negative thinking. But it's got to start in the law schools, and and then it's got to start with with the the leaders in the organized bar. Yeah, and really help uh, people plan for the future and take control of their life uh, in a very positive way. Sounds to me like. Well, listen, Eric, I I want to really thank you for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us today. Uh, can you just, uh, if you have a moment, t- tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and uh, McLeish and Wolverton and what you guys are doing with stress management? Sure. It's it's very simple. It's uh, M-A-C-L-E-I-S-H and Wolverton. People probably know how to spell that. W-O-O-L-V-E-R-T-O-N.com. But I would also urge people to to consult with um, any any of the organizations in your area that do, and it may be stress management, it may be called mind body, it may be stuff that sounds a little funky to you, okay? But you'll be able to find out where these places are. They're everywhere. It's not just for people who are basket cases. In fact, it's for people who, as you say, really want to take control over their lives um, and, and try to improve them. So get over that stigma. Find out where the programs are. There's now empirical evidence that it works and enroll in them and take it seriously. All right. Thanks so much. And remember, listeners, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. Please feel free to continue this discussion on Twitter where you can find me at Rodney Dow. And I hope you'll join us again on the next on Bill Bauer, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. Thank you. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
Thanks for listening to the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast with Attorney Rodney Dowell. Join us again for the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app.